Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I am presenting a series of programs on the book of Acts, and today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast on Acts chapter 15. I'd like to begin in Acts chapter 15, verse 5. In Acts chapter 15, verse 5, it says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And so in verse 6, it says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And in the previous program, I was describing the importance of recognizing that it was here in Acts chapter 15 that the early church was discussing this matter as to whether or not a Gentile should have to be circumcised, whether or not a Gentile should be directed to live in obedience to the law of Moses. What's important to understand here is that between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 15, the church did not deal with this question. It is here that they begin to deal with this question, which means between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 15, the early church, the apostles, the elders of the church believed that a person, especially a Jew, but perhaps even a Gentile, was expected to be circumcised and was expected to live a life of obedience to the law of Moses. It's only here that they deal with this issue. And I think this is really important to consider because there are many people who focus on the book of Acts when they are having problems in their Christian life, when they see that there are problems in their church. They look to the book of Acts believing that if they will follow the model of how people lived then, of what people believed then, of what they did in their worship services and things like that. If they follow that model, then everything will be just fine for them. However, what I have found is that in most cases, the result is best described as catastrophic in terms of the fellowships, in terms of the faith of the people, and how they actually continue to grow in their relationship with Christ Jesus. The results are quite catastrophic because there was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of uncertainty in the early church, and this, to me, is a clear example that demonstrates this fact. And so when we look at the testimony of Luke that describes the events that took place, what people said and what people did, we need to really look at it from that perspective, from the perspective that Luke said we should look at it in terms of why he wrote it. He wrote it in order to describe the events that took place and what people believed. However, here what we have is we have a clear example that they did not agree, that they did believe things that the Apostle Paul did not agree with, and we need to look and see what was their conclusion to this concern. The concern, of course, as to whether or not a Gentile would have to be circumcised, otherwise they could not be saved. As we continue to read in Acts chapter 15, verse 7, it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know a number of things, and I'll come to that in just a moment. What I want to point out and what I want to draw your attention to is the fact that he says that there was much debate. 
There was a lot of debate happening here after the apostles and the elders came, which gives more evidence to show you that they had not really considered this subject previously. And so Peter stands up, and Peter supports Paul and Barnabas. He testifies on behalf of Paul and Barnabas with regards to what happened and with regards to what they were wanting to assert that a Gentile certainly did not have to be circumcised, that a Gentile did not have to live their life in accordance with the law of Moses. And so Peter continues to say to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring to Acts chapter 10 and, of course, Acts chapter 11, when the Gentile Cornelius and his household were saved without first becoming a Jew. It was then that the church did acknowledge that a Gentile could actually be saved, but that's all that they acknowledged. They did not deal with these other concerns with regards to how a Gentile should now live in light of the salvation that they have entered into. But Peter asserts the fact that they were actually saved before they were circumcised, before they lived in obedience to the law of Moses. And this is described in verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So Peter gives testimony that the living God gave testimony by saying that there is no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile by giving them the Holy Spirit. The restoration of the Holy Spirit to humanity is salvation. Salvation is being saved from the condition of being dead. You are dead in trespasses and sins. How much more, having been reconciled by the death of his son, you shall be saved by his life. That Adam and Eve died in the Garden of Eden. They died spiritually where they lost the spirit of life that had been breathed within them when they were originally created. That was the point of death, and salvation is the restoration of that life that had been lost in Adam. So when we are saved, we are saved because he restores to us the spirit that we needed, that we were designed to have when God created us to begin with. That's salvation. The forgiveness of sins is what really makes salvation possible, because if we were to sin again after we received the Holy Spirit, if we were to sin again, then the Holy Spirit would depart in accordance with the law of sin and death. But because all sin has been forgiven, all sin has been dealt with, There is no sin left unforgiven that will cause that life to depart from within us. And so by definition, we have an eternal life, a life that will remain within us eternally, that will carry us on into eternity even after we physically die, and that is salvation. And so Peter asserts the fact that the Gentiles were saved because they received the Spirit, just as the Jews also received the Spirit. Okay, and so with regards to the subject of salvation... Peter asserts the fact that a person does not need to be circumcised or pursue the law of Moses in order to be saved. That was further described by Peter in verse 10 when he says, Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, why are you trying to get those Gentiles to live a life that we cannot live and our fathers were never able to live? 
No one was able to live in obedience to the law of Moses. And so why are we trying to get them to live in obedience to the law of Moses? Why put this yoke on them that no one has ever been able to bear to begin with? Why impose all these things on them if it's not going to have any value for them with regards to their maturity and their faith in Christ Jesus? Now, of course, this would then lead to more debate. This would be the debate, because the Pharisees did believe that they had found a way to live in obedience to the law of Moses. Peter is saying that they did not find a way to live in obedience to the law of Moses, and that would be a debate that would not easily be resolved, especially if the people are still identifying themselves as of the sect of Pharisees. That's what that would mean. This is what this word means. When you see it in the scriptures, you need to consider it from the point of view of the people, the point of view of what the people believed. The people sincerely believed that they had found a way to live in obedience, and so to encourage the Gentiles to live in a similar way is not unusual. Now, this is where the debate really is at, and why I do believe this debate was never resolved. And the reason why is because it's easy for people to say, well, it may not be necessary for salvation. However, we would expect that if a person is truly saved, that this would be evidence to show that they were saved. It's similar to what James describes as, if you have faith, then there should be works that would demonstrate your faith. Otherwise, your faith is dead. So likewise, if a person does believe in Jesus as the Messiah, then they should be living in obedience to the Mosaic law to include being circumcised. Otherwise, it demonstrates that they do not really believe in Christ Jesus. It's not a clear demonstration of their faith, and so their faith could be dead. That's where the argument would continue to exist. It may not exist in terms of salvation, But it could easily, and I believe it did continue to exist in terms of how we live our daily lives. This is very similar to the subject of baptism in many congregations. And of course, I have done a series on baptism that I would encourage you to listen to where I discuss this subject in great detail. But in many denominations today, people look at baptism as the evidence of the salvation that you have received. It's considered to be the first act of obedience. And if you do not go through with that act of obedience... If you do not go through the ritual of baptism, then people will question whether or not you even got saved. In some cases, in other cases, they won't. In those cases, they will just hold your salvation suspect, maybe, or something like that. But people look at it in a very similar way today, as I believe the church looked at it back then, looked at circumcision back then, baptism as well. But in this context, the main issue is circumcision. And so they could use that as a continuation of the debate that perhaps it is true that a Gentile can actually be saved without first being circumcised. But we would question as to whether or not they were truly saved if they did not get circumcised, if they did not then begin to live a life of obedience to the law of Moses. For Peter to bring this up and say, why do we lay this on them after they have been saved when we could not obey the law before? and we cannot obey it now, then why are we asking them to do it? Well, this would be an unresolved issue. This would be an unresolved matter, because those of the Pharisees did believe that they had found a way. But instead, in verse 11, in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, Peter continues by saying, But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Now, this is a very different way of approaching it. 
what he is saying, what Peter is saying, is that we Jews can be saved in the same way that the Gentiles can be saved, or that the Gentiles were saved. This takes it from a very different perspective. You see, beforehand, the argument was, can a Gentile be saved in the same way that we Jews have been saved? Obviously, we Jews have been saved, who believe in Jesus. Can a Gentile also be saved? Peter has taken it from the other perspective and said that we can be saved in the same way that the Gentiles have been saved. It's a very different approach that definitely will get people's attention because it truly shows that God is not going to hold greater preference to the Jews than he is to the Gentile, that he's looking at people now. He's not looking at races. He's not looking at communities or whether or not you were born as a child of Abraham. That's not the issue. The issue is what are you going to believe? Who are you going to put your faith and trust in? That's the true issue. And so in verse 12, it says that all the people kept silent at that point, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, they then diverted from the issues of, should we now live in obedience to the law, to what are the kinds of things that are really occurring in people's lives in light of what they believe? This raises an important question. Is it really a matter of what people do or what they don't do, or is it really a matter of what people believe? This is an important issue to consider. Because the miracles that were occurring were not just miracles that God was doing within and through them, although that certainly was taking place. The miracles were also about the change of heart. The miracles were about the change of attitudes, the changes, the transformations that would occur within the people, that they would actually know the living God. They would experience his love for them, and that would transform who they were as a person, and it would affect everything about their daily lives. It's not just a matter of how are we going to get miracles to occur in terms of how we are going to get God to intervene in our lives directly so that we can see him work and see him act. It's not just that. It's really a matter of how our lives going to be changed. I believe that that's what Paul and Barnabas were diverting people into, diverting their attention to not just the issues of, well, are they obeying the Sabbath law? Are they obeying the dietary laws? Are they following the first ten commandments? Those kinds of concerns. Instead of that, consider the miracles of changes that were taking place within the individual people who were beginning to trust and believe in the living God. And that would, of course, be of greater importance. Is What is happening to an individual Are they living a life in pursuit of rules and regulations and obedience and repentance? Or are they growing to know the living God? That, of course, would be of greater concern as far as I would consider. After their testimony, though, James gets up and speaks. James is considered to be the head of the church in Jerusalem, and he gets up and he finally speaks on this matter. After everyone has debated this issue, after everyone has had a reasonable opportunity to present their case, now James is going to give his judgment on this matter. And this is considered to be the end of the matter. This is considered to be how the church will address this matter and how it will be resolved. This is the point of resolution. Now, what I believe you should really focus on is this resolution. You should really look very closely at how James explains his position, what he believes the church should do in response to this debate. 
His conclusion is very important, especially when you consider what happens in the church, what happens in the ministry of the Apostle Paul after this point in the history of the church. What's important to see is this conclusion because it's going to help you understand a lot more about what happens in the subsequent chapters. And what's important to see is that James did not necessarily agree with Paul and Barnabas, or Peter for that matter. I sincerely believe that that is the conclusion that James presents, and it's something that's very important to recognize, especially right here. Continuing on in Acts chapter 15, verse 13, it says, After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He's referring to the house of Cornelius and the other Gentiles who believed. James is considering that these are people who were taken out from among the Gentiles and then added to the people of Israel, added to the Jews, after they believed in Christ Jesus as the Messiah. That's the approach that he's taking. In verse 15, he says, With this the word of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and he continues to give some testimony from the prophets. But then in verse 19, he continues and says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. This is a key point. He says, among the Gentiles. He doesn't say among the Jews, too. He just says among the Gentiles which gives a form of compromise to say that, well, of those of the Jews, we should encourage them to continue to circumcise and they should be directed to live a life in obedience to the law of Moses. But from among the Gentiles, let's just leave those folks alone. And then in verse 20, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Look at that, verse 21. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look, let's not bother with those Gentiles. Let's just tell them to abstain from these simple things And if they really want to know the rest of the story, if they really want to know the truth, they can go to the synagogues and they can hear the testimony of Moses read and spoken of every Sabbath. That's his compromise. His compromise is to say, look, those who are believing, who are of the Gentiles, let's just encourage them with regards to these laws. And if they really want to know the truth, they can go to the synagogue. Who cares what Paul and Barnabas are doing? Who cares what Peter might believe? That doesn't matter, especially since we're just talking about Gentiles. If they were Jews, it would be a different story. But because they are Gentiles, who cares? If they really want to know the truth, they can go to where the Jews are at and they can hear the truth and they can be encouraged in the proper direction that they should go in. That's what's being said here. That's what James is saying here. This is important to see. It's really important to understand. Otherwise, you're not going to understand the rest of the controversies from this day forward. This is the solution. And sure enough, that's the end of the subject. That's the end of the subject. In verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. 
and they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren, who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. You see that? It says, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Not Jews, Gentiles. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. In other words, James is saying we did not send these guys to you, but he is not saying that we do not agree with what they said. Instead, what they are saying is, is they are saying we may not agree with Paul. We may agree with his people who did go to you, who did disturb you. We may actually agree with what they believe, but we don't believe that you need to be subjected to that doctrine. Why? Because you're a Gentile, you're not a Jew. That's what's being said here. Who cares about the Gentiles? If they want to know the truth, they can go to Moses. That's verse 21. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. If you really want to know the truth, just go back to the synagogue and you can hear it there. That's how James resolves this controversy. This is very important to see, especially because, again, in later chapters, we're going to come back to this subject and we're going to see that this conflict between Paul and James still is not resolved. Now, of course, this is the testimony of James. What did Paul have to say about this? Paul had a lot to say about this. He describes his opinion with regards to this issue in Galatians chapter 2. And it, of course, is very important to look at Paul's testimony with regards to what took place here. Otherwise, you're not going to have a complete perspective. What we have recorded here in Acts chapter 15 is the perspective of the church in Jerusalem, the perspective of the apostles, the perspective of James. But Paul's perspective is not really well presented here. You see, it's assumed that Paul went down here in order to discuss this matter and to have this matter resolved by being corrected by James, or at least come to some kind of an agreement. And Paul's testimony is not really given here in Acts chapter 15 with regards to how he sees this, because Paul did not go down to Jerusalem to get anybody's approval. He did not go down there to get anybody's agreement. That's not why he was there. He went there in order to present his case and to present what he was teaching among the Gentiles, but he didn't go down there in order to get some kind of approval from the church in Jerusalem. He didn't go down there in order to get instruction from James and then follow through with those instructions. That's not what was going on here. But if you just read Acts chapter 15, it's very easy to make that assumption. In order to have a complete perspective of what was truly taking place, it is necessary to go through Galatians chapter 2, because in Galatians chapter 2, Paul gives his personal account with regards to what he felt, what he saw taking place here in this council. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul wrote, beginning in verse 1, Then after an interval of fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. 
What's he saying here in verse 2? He's saying quite simply that the gospel that he was teaching among the Gentiles was different from the gospel that was being taught in Jerusalem, and that Paul met with those who were of reputation privately to explain to them the differences between the gospel that they were preaching and the gospel that he was preaching. There was a distinct difference. In verse 3, we have an indication with regards to one of these differences, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Well, their gospel included circumcision, which would mean this. Their gospel would be, believe in Jesus as the Messiah, because he's the one who has fulfilled the prophecies. But now that you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, now, in order to demonstrate your trust and belief and faith in him, now you should live in obedience to the Mosaic law. You should be circumcised and you should be directed and you should be dependent on the Mosaic law in terms of how you live your daily life. But Paul was not teaching that. He was not teaching that at all. Continuing in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, he wrote, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. It's a very profound statement to say that those who were of reputation, who were those of reputation? It was the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem. He names names in just a moment, continuing in verse 7, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectively worked for Peter... In his apostleship to the circumcised effectively worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Those were the people, James, Peter, who was Cephas, and John, who were supposedly people of reputation, who supposedly were something but added nothing to the faith of Paul, who taught a different gospel than what Paul taught. Those people told him that he ought to go to the Gentiles, but of course we know in his ministry, he didn't just go to the Gentiles, he continued to reach out to the Jews. Paul did not yield in submission before, and he did not afterwards. There was never any true reconciliation between Paul and James. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net